Let's turn our Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to be looking at, in some lessons here in this wonderful section of the Gospel of Matthew, the, what's known as the Mystery Parables Discourse. And in this particular section of the Gospel of Matthew, our Lord does something new that the disciples immediately recognize. And, and one of the things that, that stands out in this chapter in Matthew 13 is we realize, those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ, those of us who are born again and we're following the Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize what a privilege that is. What a privilege it is to be saved. What a privilege it is to know where you and I are going to spend eternity. To know it with a certainty from the Word of God. What a privilege it is to, to even now in this world that's so antagonistic to God that to have peace with God. The Bible says it's a peace that surpasseth all understanding. And it's all because of a person. That person right there. That name. I, I like to look at that name. I don't know about you. I love to look at that name. I love to think about that name, Jesus Christ. I love to meditate on Him. And the more we realize what He gave on that cross in order to give us the salvation that we enjoy, the more we appreciate and value Him. Uh, the Lord says something in the early part of Matthew 13 in verse 16 and 17 that I think is very significant. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Speaking to those who are his disciples, he says, blessed are your eyes. That's what I would like to title this message. Blessed are your eyes. Why? For assuredly, I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men of the Old Testament time period, he's talking about, many of them desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That's privilege, isn't it? And any follower of Jesus Christ would be characterized by this blessing. And sometimes in just the busyness of living in this world and trying to survive in the midst of economic decline and difficult job situations or lack of jobs and difficulties in school and difficulties in families and, and even in the assembly fellowships, sometimes relational difficulties, we sometimes forget and we need to sometimes step back and remind ourselves of whose we are. We belong to Christ. He bought us out. We're a new creation in Him. And in doing that, He has brought us into a place of enormous blessing. You know, we were gathered together to remember Lola's birthday yesterday and seeing all those little children, many of them under five years of age, moving around. It was beautiful, wasn't it? See those children... But, but every, every one of, I was thinking about it as we were there. Every one of those children is going to spend eternity in one of only two places. You realize that? You look down on them, you go look at them in the Sunday school this morning. And it's a sobering fact, isn't it? Every one of them is going to spend eternity in one of only two places. Just as every one of us in this room. And everyone in this world. We know God's feeling on the matter, don't we? He's not willing that any should perish. He didn't create hell for human beings. He created hell for the devil and his angels, according to Matthew 25. But he says there that there will be human beings that will, will go there and choose to go there because they choose to reject Jesus Christ, the only Savior that God offers to sinful Mankind. Well, this marvelous chapter 
that we're going to be looking at. And as many of you as are able, we would would uh, really delight in having you with the Tuesday night study this week, and as well as Wednesday night and Tuesday night next week, as you're able to work it in your schedules, because even in five sessions, two today and those other three, in five sessions, we will not be able to exhaust the riches of this chapter, I can assure you. But I think we'll be able to get enough of a description of what's going on in this chapter that all of us can profit and go on in our own personal study and meditation on what the Lord's teaching here. Our Lord is doing something different. Earlier in Matthew, Matthew has arranged his gospel differently than Mark and Luke and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels because they give a synopsis of our Lord's public ministry, his three and a half year public ministry. But they're not all the same, and, and how they're arranged is very important. The Holy Spirit led Matthew not to put these elements together in, with an emphasis on the chronology. His emphasis is more on the subject matter, the topics, and he arranges the, the various events, miracles, words of our Lord in, in a very... Well, Matthew was a, as we used to say in engineering, a bean pusher. He was an accountant. You know, we engineers, we, we had an idea of what we wanted to see done, and the bean pushers always seemed to get in the way because it had to fit in with the assets and liabilities column, you know, and we need people like that. We need people like that in running a camp or any kind of a ministry like that, don't we? And, and it's so important. It's a good balance. But Matthew had a, had a mind like that. He was a tax collector. He knew figures and, and knew how to calculate taxes and collect them and the different ways they could collect them in the first century. And so he arranges his material differently. He focuses in chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, in the introduction to it. He focuses on the words of our Lord Jesus. And Matthew alone records the entirety of that sermon. Mark and Luke have excerpts of it. And then Matthew moves in chapters 8, 9, and 10 to describe the miracles of our Lord. So he has his words and then his works. That's what an orderly mind would do. He would say, here's his testimony in terms of his words, and here's his testimony in terms of his works. Just like how we testify, don't we? We testify according to what we say and what we do, both of them. We may hand out a written tract, and then we put tracts on the ground, and they watch our character and conduct too, don't they? So they, they look at both. And that's how our Lord displayed Himself to Israel, to the nation set apart miraculously by God as a testimony for Him on earth for some 2,000 years. They'd been set apart. Remember, Isaac was miraculously born. The nation was created by miracles, a testimony to all the nations of the earth. Israel was to be a testimony to all the nations. God always had on his heart all the nations, still does. And we say, well, Israel failed, didn't they? Well, they had some successes. They had failures, just like we do in the church age. And we've had almost 2,000 years of history, too, in 2030 which is not too far off. Many of you, maybe me, will be alive during that time if the Lord hasn't come. It'll be in 2,000 years of church history. And, and we've had our own failures and successes through that history, haven't we? So we don't pick up rocks to throw at Israel. I don't, anyway. I learn from their mistakes, or try to. We all try to. But then, after he'd given that testimony to Israel... In chapters 11, 12, and 13, Matthew begins to explain Israel's response to the testimony. And that's the way it always is, isn't it? We witness, we testify for God, but God then looks for the response. And every individual is responsible, each one of us is responsible for how we respond 
to the testimony that God gives us. You with me so far? And so, here in chapter 13, in chapter 12, Israel as a nation, by means of their leaders, rejects Jesus Christ as their Messiah. They officially reject Him and they say, yes, you've done the miracles. We can't deny that. You've done the miracles. But it's the source, the power by which you've done the miracles. Well, it's the devil. It's not God. Therefore, you're an imposter. That's like many people say today that Jesus Christ is an imposter. He's not really the Son of God. And you and I, everyone in this room, before we go out that door, we're going to have to have decided, if we haven't already, I hope we have, who Jesus Christ is. He says He's God in a human body. And when He ascended that hill of Calvary and allowed those men to stretch out His arms and to nail Him to that cross, it was God in a human body being crucified, the perfect Son of God. But He was being crucified not for Himself, but for others. Substitutionary atonement. The message that God taught human beings all the way back in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, He taught them there would be a substitute who would die for them. The seed of the woman would eventually come and crush the serpent's head. Here he is. The seed of the woman was there, right in front of them. They'd been reading their Old Testaments. They'd been memorizing their Old Testaments. They'd been meditating on their Old Testaments for centuries. And they missed him when he was there. Not the whole nation. A remnant did believe in him. But most of them didn't. And so, I don't know about you, I'm sure you would think the same way. You're reading through Matthew and the Gospel, and, well, wait a minute. Here He is, Messiah. He's here. And the nation rejects Him. What's going to happen then? What's going to happen next? Right? You think that way as you're reading it? I do. And then I ask myself a second question. Why? With all the testimony He gave them, why did they choose to reject Him? Well, He answers both those questions in this marvelous chapter. That's why it's so important. And as He answers those questions, He moves into a new form of communicating, of teaching. It's called parables. And when we study and interpret parabolic literature in the Bible, parables, the rules that we use in interpretation are different than when we study, say, poetry or prose or narrative, like most of the rest of the Gospel of Matthew is narrative. It's prose, right? The book of Psalms is poetry, Ecclesiastes. Proverbs, that's poetry, Hebrew poetry, not English poetry, but Hebrew poetry. And it has a certain style and certain characteristics on how we study it. So here for the first time in the New Testament, because Matthew being the first book in the New Testament, we come across, we start at the beginning of Matthew, we're reading through the New Testament, and boom, we hit parables for the first time here in chapter 13. And it's so important that even his apostles and the other disciples that were following him, they step back and they say, wait a minute, this is new. Why are you doing this? Why are you teaching like this? Look with me at what he says here in verse 10. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Why are you using this technique, Lord? And he answered and said to them, because it's been given to you, the disciples, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. You see the pronouns there? You, them. See, the Lord's making a distinction. 
you refers to those who had trusted in him that were disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. Them refers to the rest of the multitudes that were gathered there. And so when the Lord goes to speaking in parables, he is making a division or a distinction in this great multitude, this crowd of people that's following him. And he still does that today, doesn't he? Because not everybody follows him. Not everybody is interested in the gospel. Not everybody is interested in being saved. According to the way God has set it up here. Most people will probably be interested in being saved. But maybe not the way God has set it up. See, there's God's way of salvation. And then there's a, a thousand other ways that man comes up with in his own imagination. Probably with a little help from the devil too. And that's exactly what the Lord said in chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. When he said... Really, he says, it comes down to it, there's only two roads, right? There's only two of them. There's the broad road and there's the narrow road. That's all. And, you, and to get on the narrow road, you've got to go through the narrow gate. And that gate, it's like a turnstile. You can only go, only go through one at a time. And salvation's like that. It's individual. Each person, I can't say, well, my parents were saved, so therefore I'm going to be saved because my parents were saved. Or I can't say, well... I've got some children that go to Sunday school and they're saved, so I I guess I'm going to be saved. It doesn't work like that, does it? It's individual. Each person has to make their decision for themselves. That's the way God has set it up. That's how he made us. Responsible, moral agents. He made us with that part of being made in the image and likeness of God. And so these people are making... A statement about their own hearts in how they respond to the gospel message. You with me? And every time we share the gospel, and I hope you're sharing the gospel, I know your life is sharing it. If you're born again, your testimony is part of sharing the gospel, but sometimes we get chances to do it verbally. Sometimes we get chances to do it by doing acts of kindness to people. But in any of those ways, we're testifying for God. And as we testify, we can't see what's happening in a human heart, right? But something is happening inside that heart. Responding to the word of the gospel. And that's what our Lord starts with here in what he calls the parable of the sower. Now, just briefly, we'll talk about it some more on tonight, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. But just so you have an idea for your own reading in Matthew 13, how it's laid out, how Matthew has laid it out. There are eight parables that he lists here. Mark lists two other ones in his parallel account. There were two other Parables that were given, apparently. Matthew doesn't record them, so you put all those together. But just focusing on Matthew 13. He begins, verse 1, he, Jesus moves, he went out of the house and sat by the sea. So just his movement alone is communicating truth, isn't it? He moves, he's been in the house. With the disciples, he moves out of the house, goes out to the sea. The sea is a picture of the nations of the world. There are many Old Testament references that can validate that. And it even comes out here in Matthew. And he gives the parable of the sower, beginning in verse 2. Great multitudes were gathered together. He gets in a boat and he gives the parable. And that's down through verse 9. And then, beginning in verse 10, the disciples come to him and ask him, Why are you speaking in parables? And he explains to them why he's speaking to them in parables. And that goes all the way down through verse 17. Follow this with your eyes in your own Bible so you can see it for yourself. And then you notice in verse 18, he begins to explain the parable of the sower. So he gives the parable, then there's this kind of 
time where he moves away from the parable itself and talks about their privilege. And then he comes back to explaining the parable there in verse 18 down through verse 23. And that's about the parable of the sower, the first parable. And then in verse 24, another parable he spoke to them. And here's the second parable. The kingdom of heaven is as he who sowed good seed in his field. And that parable, the Bible calls it the parable of the tares of the field in verse 36. And so I'm going to stay with what the Bible calls it. I know sometimes I've even called it the parable of the wheat and the tares. You maybe have heard that. But the Bible calls it the parable of the tares of the field. And there's a reason why it's called that. And we'll look at that when we get to it. So that's the second parable, right? But he gives the parable beginning there in verse 24 down through verse 30. But you notice he doesn't explain the parable right away. So the second parable, he gives the parable, and then he gives two more. Verse 31, the parable of the mustard seed, and then verse 33, the parable of the leaven in three lumps of dough. Okay? That's two more parables. And then, in terms of his location, his geography, you notice in verse 36, he leaves the multitude that's by the sea, and he goes back into the house. So he had been by the sea, gave the parable of the sower, explained that parable to everybody. Okay, to the whole multitude got to hear that explanation. And then they all got to hear the second parable, the parable of the tares of the field, and they heard, not the explanation of it, but the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, right? Then he moves into the house, and his disciples come to him and say, Explain to us this parable of the tares of the field. So he explains. The second parable, beginning in verse 36 down through verse 43. And you notice he doesn't explain the parable of the mustard seed or the parable of the leaven. In this whole section of eight parables, he only explains two of them. So therefore, they're the two most important. The parable of the sower, the parable of the tares of the field. The parable of the sower answers the question... Why did Israel respond the way they did to the message? The parable of the tares of the field answers the question, what's going to happen in the meantime? If Israel rejects him, what's going to happen? And the parable of the tares of the field answers that. These other shorter parables are supportive of those two main parables. <laughs> I know it's hard to follow along that. We'll... We'll, work, we'll continue to work through it as we look at it in detail. But then, after he gives the explanation of the parable of the tares of the field, finishes that in verse 43, he gives four more parables. The parable of the treasure hidden in the field, verse 44. The parable of the merchant sinking beautiful pearls in verse 45. The parable of the dragnet in verse 47. And the parable of the householder in verse 52. That's the eight parables. And all of the three synoptic gospels follow the same order with regard to those parables. As I say, Mark adds two more that aren't recorded here. Luke doesn't go into as much detail as Matthew does. Matthew gives us the most detail. Aren't you, isn't, aren't you glad? I am. That the Holy Spirit led Matthew to do it and led the compilers of the New Testament to include the gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is the only one that talks about the church in chapter 16. you realize that? The church is a mystery in the Old Testament. It's explained in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. And then, of course, chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians in practice. But the Lord introduced the idea of it in Matthew 16, 18. Matthew is so important in understanding the progression of of the revelation of God to his disciples in the New Testament. And I kind of wonder, as I look at the Gospel of Matthew and study it, I've been reluctant to preach from it for years. I've been fascinated with it. I've been reluctant to preach from it because I said, Lord, I want to have time to really study it before I preach from a book like this. Because it's, it's difficult. It's complicated. It's detailed. 
But as I study it, and I invite you in your own time of reading and studying, I think you'll find more and more how rich this gospel is. He concludes it with the second visit of our Lord Jesus to Nazareth. All of that happened in what's called, the commentary is called, the busy day. Because the end, beginning in verse 24 of chapter 12, all the way through this, all happened in one day. We find that out from the Gospel of Mark. And you get an idea of how busy our Lord was. The Gospel writers didn't include every busy day that the Lord had, because every day he had in his public ministry, I believe, was just as busy as this one. That's how busy he was. God believes in work, doesn't he? Teaches that all the way through his word. And our Lord worked hard when he was here. And according to John 5, he's still working, isn't he? He and the Father. Saving people. Bringing them into his church. And then he'll be working to draw people out during the tribulation period after the church is taken out. And then he'll be working in judgment. Then he'll be working in the millennial kingdom. And there will finally be rest in the new heavens and new earth. That will be the ultimate rest of Sabbath. The Sabbath rest as it's pictured all the way through the Bible. So the parable of the sower. We have a few minutes to, to think about it. It's interesting. The seed that's being cast forward is the message, the word, as Matthew puts it, the word of the kingdom. Mark and Luke will say it's the word of God. It's, it's, the, it's the scriptures, you could say. But it's his word, it's his message. We would call it the gospel. The Bible calls it the gospel in other places, doesn't it? And so, as he goes forth, and his disciples will follow after him, and cast forth the seed, it's a picture of a farmer going through the field, that, a field that's been cultivated and prepared, and throwing out seed. And while our Lord Jesus is giving this parable by the seaside, the Sea of Galilee, on the north shore, probably near Capernaum, there's an area there that's uh, dedicated to this particular event. Even today, you could go to it. They always put a church there. Some group will want to put a church there. And there's a church there. And this is where they... And you can stand there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and look all over around you in three directions. If you look south, you're going to see water. But if you look to the other three directions, north, south, north east, and west, you can see fields where they're, they're cultivating, they're growing wheat and then barley and other things. So you can imagine the time of year the Lord gave this, that there were men out there going seed. Not an accident that our Lord would... And, and when he says, Behold, he may have motioned with his hand, Behold! And they all look around and they see that a sower went forth to cast seed. Now when that sower, that farmer, is casting out seed... <clears throat> What is his goal? What is his purpose? Is he just trying to decorate the ground with the seed? Is that what he's after? Is he hoping that it will germinate and get green and then he can sit out on his back porch with his cup of coffee and just look at a nice green colored field? Is that what he's after? Well, if you talk to a farmer, I don't know how many of you in South Florida get exposed to farming. I'm a city slicker myself in Houston, but, but my heritage, my, the Wheelers, or they still farm up in western Illinois in some of the richest soil in this country, in the area of the bread belt, they call it, the bread basket of the United States. That soil is so rich, all you've got to do, you don't even really have to prepare it. You just throw the seed in it, and it grows man-high corn, and, and it's a, even it's, it's a different color. It's blue-green, and it's really spectacular. So what is that farmer after? He's after fruit, right? He's after what that seed, eventually when it grows up into a stalk, what it produces. 
produces in the end fruit that he can then eat for himself and his family and sell or barter with others to get other things that he needs to survive. That's the picture he gives. And as he casts forth the seed, the Lord mentions four different types of soil conditions. Some have called it the parable of the seed, and some even call it the parable of the seed and the soils. But it, there aren't really four types of soil. It's all the same soil. But there are four different soil conditions, conditions of soil, which are pictures of the human heart and the conditions of the human heart and how the heart responds to the word of God when someone tells us about the gospel. You see how practical this is? As we share the gospel, the Lord says there's only four types of responses to the gospel. <clears throat> only four. That makes it easy for us a little bit to understand. We still don't understand what's going on in the human heart. That's a great mystery, isn't it? We wonder, what did they think of the message? What did they think of the Lord Jesus? Did they get saved? Did they trust him? And, and we don't know. Sometimes it takes time to find out, right? We pray for them. We try to help them understand. But the Lord says, well, the sower went forth to cast seed, beginning in verse 3. In verse 4, and as he sowed, some seed, here's the first type, fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. That's the first one. The second one, some fell on stony places where there did not have much earth. Soil was thin over the rocky ground. And they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. That's the second one. So far, have, have either of those two produced fruit? No fruit yet, right? And then some, thirdly, fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. Any fruit? No fruit yet. But, he says in verse 8, others. You notice, some, 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 and then but others. So even the words our Lord uses shows that there's a three and then a one. There's a change that happens here. Some fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. <clears throat> he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, this is going to, in order to understand this, it's going to take the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And we know that. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, right? When we share the word of God with someone in the gospel, the Holy Spirit has to give them the understanding in their hearts in order for them to respond. Okay, that brings us down, <coughs> excuse me, to verse 18, to the explanation. Now, the explanation. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. And that's as far as we'll be able to get this morning. We'll try to get through this. A little explanation down through verse 23. Now he's given us the parable. Now he's going to explain what each of these soil conditions means. Great help to us. Verse 19. Here's the first one. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, which is the gospel, and does not understand it, then the wicked one, the devil, comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. So it was sown in his heart. That doesn't mean he's born again. And he does not understand it. Okay? And this is he who receives seed by the wayside. You know, as you look at a cultivated field, it can be packed. The ground can be kind of packed along the side of it where people walk or where they use their carts and things to move things around. And it kind of gets hard packed, right? And the seed that falls, it just, you know, it just can't penetrate. And, and so the birds come along and say, thank you for the free meal. And, they take, and they'll come in and take that seed, right? And the birds of the air are a picture of demons coming in and taking away... What was sown in his heart. In other words, you tell them the gospel, they hear it, but they don't understand it. Doesn't make sense. <clears throat> and so they become disinterested. Right? 
explain it away, whatever, forget about it. And pretty soon, even what you shared with them in their heart is gone. Because the devil takes it away. That doesn't mean you can't share it with them again. <laughs> of course, we want to do that. But is it, it's an interesting dynamic to think about, isn't it? In our pride, in our old nature, we're so proud, you know, as human beings. In our pride, we think we're in control of our destiny and we think it's all about us, you know, and the world. And fallen man thinks the world revolves around him instead of around the Lord. And so they think, oh, yeah, you shared that with me, but I'm not interested today, and, and I'm not interested in your Jesus Christ. I'm not interested in your salvation, and I don't think I need to be redeemed. I think I'm okay and, and get real pride or maybe talk about how religious we are. Well, you don't know how religious I am. I've got all these Sunday school buttons, and I've done all these things, and I went forward to Billy Graham meeting, and I did all these wonderful things. I'm okay. I don't need your gospel. What do we do? Do we get angry? Better not. It's not a good testimony. We get frustrated. I'm not sharing the gospel anymore. He said some mean things to me, I'm going to, and I got hurt, and I'm not talking about it anymore. That's not the right attitude either, right? We get kind of sorry for ourselves. Well, you know, why was he so mean? Why was she so mean? Oh, believe me, hey, we're all human beings. We all can go through those reactions at first. But then we can come alongside, if we don't snap out of it ourselves, a brother or sister can come alongside and help us out and say, look, you did the right thing. You testified. Leave it with the Lord. You don't know what God's doing in that heart. And that person doesn't even know what God's doing in their heart. You know, there's a story up in Dallas, Texas, there in Texas, you knew I'd eventually get to Texas somewhere in the... But in First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, the brother George Truett was the preacher there back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he's known as one of the great gospel preachers of, of our era. And brother Truett was preaching the gospel late in his life. And there was a man there in the audience, I think he was a lawyer... And he was there and heard the message. He came up afterwards. He said, you know, Brother Truett, you don't preach as good as you did when you first came. He said, you've gotten older. You probably, I don't know what's happened to your skills, but, but you don't preach. He said, you know what? You know how I know why? He said, because when you first came and you gave the gospel, I would be sitting trembling in my seat there in the pew. I'd be so scared of going to hell that I'd be trembling and then I'd go home and I couldn't sleep for a few days. He said, but you give the gospel now. You don't scare me. I don't tremble anymore. I don't lose sleep over it. And Brother Truett looked at him. It's not Brother Truett that had changed. It wasn't the gospel that had changed. What had happened? The man's heart got hardened. He could sit there in the pew and you could preach the gospel till you were blue in the face to somebody like that and they're not going to get saved because they've hardened their own hearts. The same sun that hardens clay into bricks melts butter. It's the same sun. It's the response to it that's different, right? Clay, does, clay just hardens the silicon molecules. They all get linked up together and it just hardens. And butter just melts. And that's the same that happens in a human heart when we share the gospel. It's happening in your heart right now as you hear the word of God. Either you're softening your heart to it and it's warming your heart <coughs> to Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. Or <clears throat> you're hardening to it. Yeah, that's, a, that's a serious matter when it comes to your eternal destiny, isn't it? It's a serious matter when we think about, well, one of the songs that 
and I uh, really appreciate the young people like today that who's going to tell them how will they know how will they come to Christ unless somebody tells them the people of this lost generation are being taken prisoners of Satan let's take the time to give them salvation what a statement huh that's what we're about the third type of soil very quickly but he who received a seed on stony places verse 20 this is he who hears the word notice in all four of them they hear the word they hear the word they hear the word so they all hear it but hearing the word alone is not sufficient is it as we're going to see in the fourth soil so this one hears the word and immediately receives it with joy yet he has no root in himself thank you brother appreciate that he has no root, but only endures for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of what? The word. Immediately he stumbles. Things don't go right. They get all excited about the gospel. The idea of having eternal life. Wow, I can be saved. And wow, maybe a miracle happened in my life. You know, this is the... The hyper-emotional response, right? Joy over the gospel. And think, man, I can be saved from judgment? Well, that's a wonderful thing. This kind of person is the kind of person Peter talks about who, who turns the liberty of Jesus Christ into licentiousness, right? Who says, well, man, I'm saved. I can do whatever I want now. And God has to save me because I believed his gospel. In other words, plays games with God. <laughs> We're going to fool God. What does the writer of Hebrews say in 4.13 of Hebrews? Everything is laid open and bare before him with whom we have to do. <laughs> he sees everything in here. Things we don't even see. <laughs> don't fool God. Don't play a game like that with God. If you've heard somebody that does that, try to help them. Pray for them. Because you and I are part of this whole process of helping others come to the Lord, aren't we? If we have any heart and compassion and mercy for people at all, we want to be able to help them get to the place and privilege that we're enjoying and become disciples of Jesus Christ too. That's what we want to see happen. And so the emotional response until tribulation and persecution comes and then they're out of there. Little trouble comes in their life. Disappointments. You say, man, I trusted in the Lord and now I find out I got cancer. What kind of a deal is that? Or I trusted in the Lord and went forward and I, and I had this wonderful time and then I lost my job. Where was God when that happened? Maybe this gospel is not real. And they, they fall away. They wither away. See, Were they really born again? No. They just got excited for a while. See, Don't trust emotions. That's why the signs and wonders movement is so dangerous. Because the signs and wonders movement that began in 86 had said that unless you're seeing miracles happening in your church and you need to demand miracles from God and if you don't see the miracles, you're not really a New Testament church. That's their doctrine. Well, by the way, there are a bunch of miracles sitting in this room right today, including the one standing here. Yeah, there are miracles happening. Anytime someone, uh, a lost, vile sinner, gets born again, that's a miracle, isn't it? And we can participate in that process with God in the new creation. What a privilege. And we do that when we sow the seed. You know, we could have said, Lord... The angels would do a better job of it than we would. And we'd probably be right in saying that or thinking that, wouldn't we? The angels that didn't sin, that are so loyal to God, they'd do anything for Him. But no, the Lord says, no, I want to use my people. I want to use frail, born-again Christians who still fumble, they still stumble, they still make mistakes, but I lift them up. And they're real, and they're hurting people. And they can relate to people. They're not self-righteous and proud. They're humble. And I can use them. And I want to work through people like that. Wow, that's our God, see? 
That's what our God is like. That's what our Heavenly Father is like. And that brings us to the fourth soil. And we conclude in verse 23. Well, I, I skipped verse 22, didn't I? <clears throat> the third one. He who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Unfruitful, I think, means no fruit, no root. He said in chapter 12, you know them by their fruit. Unfruitful means still not saved. And what kept that person from being saved? They heard the word. But the cares of life and the deceitfulness of riches, materialism, got them, sidetracked. This is one of the ones that the devil uses in the United States of America. This doesn't work so well in most parts of China because materialism isn't a danger for the Chinese people that are coming to the Lord in droves, by the way. The greatest number of people coming to the Lord in this world are in China and parts of India. Not in America. Because materialism. We get so wrapped up with, well, I got this, I got to do this, I got to have this, I got to have insurance for this, I got to worry about this, I got to make sure I take care of this. And it's all stuff, right? Like one comedian said years ago, he said, yeah, but what about our stuff? We, we move over here, we got to bring our stuff. Where are we going to put all our stuff? We have so much stuff, you know, and a brother and I, we talk about, let's lighten the ship. Start throwing the tackle overboard. Let's get the ship light so we can move through this world a lot easier. And so the fourth soil, this is the good ground. You, you know, you've maybe heard in evangelistic meetings and gospel meetings, someone gets up and prays, Lord, I'm praying for good ground hearers. You heard that expression? That's what he's talking about right here. He who receives seed on the good ground, and then notice there are three steps. Is he who hears the word, all of them heard the word, and understands it. And how do we understand the gospel? By the help of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2 and other places in the Bible too. Tell us that. So this person hears it, understands it, and then there's a third step, who indeed bears fruit and produces at different ranges. Some 60, some 30, some 100 fold. I'm told in... In Israel, in the, in the Middle East, the ground is so rich that a hundredfold is not impossible. Now, in America, most parts of America, sixtyfold would be great. I'm told in other parts of the world, in some parts of Africa, it's a hundred and twentyfold. Can you imagine one seed getting a hundred and twenty? That's that's good production. What's the Lord looking for? What's the goal here? Producing fruit. Someone says, well, what is that fruit? What does it look like? Well, it starts with confessing with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believing in our heart, right? Romans 10, 9 and 10. Someone says, yeah, well, yeah, the thief on the cross, he didn't bear much fruit, did he? Oh, yes, he did. <laughs> oh, my, did he ever. Read what he says. He begins, he and the other criminal are reviling Christ... Both of them are reviling and mocking him. And then he begins to realize who the Lord Jesus is. He changes and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Lord. <laughs> he was born again. And then, so he's publicly confessed with his mouth, right? To all those that were at the foot of the cross and the other criminal. And then he rebukes the other criminal. He says, you're getting what you deserve, but he is innocent. That's worship. Some produce 60, some produce 30. That's up to the Lord, right? Depends on how long we're here on earth, how many opportunities we get. But I don't know about you. I want to burn out for Christ. I, I, it took years to come to the place of saying, I don't want to rust out. You want to rust out, just live to be old and not do anything for the Lord, anything that really counts, but still have your retirement and all and live along. Not me. I'd rather burn out than rust out. Christy Knuckles sings a song that 
our young people listen to, and I like to listen to it too. I love my master. I will not go free. You know what she's talking about? Exodus chapter 21, I think it's verse 6. The particular slave, he recognized how wonderful his master was, and he had his wife and his children. And when the time came, when he was the year of release, when he could be released from his slavery, and he says, no, I'm not going. I'm staying here with you. What do you mean? Here's your chance. No. I love my master. I will not go free. And the picture is, I love my Lord Jesus enough. I'm not going to go out and free and be sinful and live like the world and sin it up as much as I can. If you're born again... You can do that for a time, and the Lord will still save you, because <laughs> our Lord is like that. He's gracious. But he'll eventually bring you under the rod, won't he, and discipline you, and maybe even take you home ahead of your time. The Bible tells us that. There were people like that. Ananias and Sapphira are two of them. <clears throat> so you don't play loose and fast with God. But what about you? What about me? I love my master. He died for me. I'm not going to go free and live for self and for the world and for what I want. I'm going to live for him. You can make that decision today. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, you can make that decision today. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Acknowledge you're a sinner before a holy God. Let him save you. Ask him to save you. Talk to one of us and we'll help you. For those of us who are disciples and followers of Christ, we're challenged too, aren't we? We need to realign our priorities, our perspective on this world and the world to come. Be a testimony for Him. Because He's worthy. And so, Father, we thank You for Your Word, for the encouragement it gives to us. Thank you, Lord, that you've loved us with an everlasting love, an eternal love. We thank you that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, we pray if there's anyone in this room that doesn't have that life, that you would lead them to Christ and they would turn and be healed delivered from the coming wrath. For those of us who are followers, Lord, <clears throat> some of us may need to realign our lives and shed a few things. Some of us may need to refocus. You can help us. We want to live for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the glory of our Father. And we pray you'll help us to do that. Help us to have a good afternoon and evening this evening with you, O oh Lord, and enjoy one another, enjoy the fellowship of the family of God that you've brought us into. And we do ask these things, giving you thanks now in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.